Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. This is Jonathan Kay, Canadian editor for Quillette.com. Welcome to the Quillette podcast. A year ago, renowned Harvard psychology professor Steven Pinker published Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. The book was lauded by the New York Times as, quote, lucidly written, timely, rich in data, and eloquent in its championing of a rational humanism that, it turns out, is really quite cool. Now, a year later, Pinker has written an essay for Quillette in which he examines and confronts the many reactions that his book elicited. He also spoke to me by phone from his office at Harvard. Here are excerpts from that interview. Were you prepared for the scope of the response that was generated by Enlightenment Now over the last year? I knew that it would be controversial. I had not anticipated uh, a number of the responses. I didn't think there would be quibbling over uh, who deserves to be counted as part of the Enlightenment, and uh, that there'd be an objection to the very idea of endorsing Enlightenment ideals on the grounds that there are a bunch of different guys during the Enlightenment era who disagreed with each other, therefore you can't say anything about what the, what the Enlightenment ideals were, because um, you know, those guys didn't all say, say the same thing. I had taken it for granted that the uh, that the term Enlightenment ideals or Enlightenment project refer to uh, a set of ideas of uh, reason, science, um, promoting human welfare, finding a basis for uh, politics and morality and meaning that did not hinge on uh, religion. Uh, the fact that if you went back and you looked at what everyone wrote at that time, some people uh, disagreed with others, therefore you can't say anything about uh, the Enlightenment project. Uh, it didn't occur to me that that would be that people get hung up on that, which they did. Some did. It strikes me that there are some figures you discuss, uh, both in your book and also in, in this article that you've written for Quillette about the response to the book, that do have a genuinely ambiguous relationship with the the Enlightenment. And one of them is Rousseau, who you quote one writer as calling him, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, the cuckoo bird in the uh, the Enlightenment cabinet. Did you have to wrestle with how you were, were going to include certain figures in, in the book? I, I didn't. I excluded Rousseau, not because... Uh, I was interested in, in gerrymandering the definition of uh, of enlightenment, but just because I was my, my goal was to defend reason, science, and humanism. Each one of them got uh, those topics got a, a big chapter. Uh, I uh, used uh, enlightenment as a rubric for those, together with progress. And and yeah, I didn't count Rousseau and. To those who would say, well, aren't you committing the, the no true Scotsman fallacy that is saying on the basis of uh, the actual uh, ideas that I'm not going to count them as part of the Enlightenment? Well, yeah, that's kind of what I was doing because I don't care about the word Enlightenment. I care about reason, science, humanism, and progress. If you don't like the word Enlightenment, then we'll, we'll use another word. We'll call it secular humanism. We'll call it cosmopolitan liberalism. We'll call it the open society. 
I don't really care about the term enlightenment because uh, other than that, it conveyed the idea uh, more economically than any of the alternatives. But it's not as if it was a, uh, a cult or a creed or a club with an official doctrine. Uh, it's a term that, uh, that, that has a uh, well-understood uh, meaning, and that's the sense in which I, I was using it. There is no technical definition, and I considered it uh, a waste of time, really, to quibble over who really gets to count as part of the Enlightenment. It's not like the Nicene Creed in Christianity, where there's a set of tenets that you have to believe in if you're a, a true Christian. That's just not what the Enlightenment was. That said, people love to argue about who were the the five greatest Roman emperors uh, or the greatest <laughs> the greatest scientists. Um, yes. Did you not predict that there was going to be some sensitivity about the way you would treat certain thinkers? I didn't think that that would be as big a deal as it turned out to be. Uh, perhaps because I understood and said that look, I'm not. This isn't a, a creed. It isn't a club. Uh, it isn't a a period of time with opening and closing ceremonies. It's a, a fuzzy concept, as most concepts are, but it has a well-understood meaning that when Barack Obama refers to the, uh, the ideals of the Enlightenment, uh, you know, he wasn't, didn't particularly care about, well, are people going to misunderstand him as, as referring to Rousseau? He had a meaning in mind. He uh, anticipated that his audience would understand it in a particular way. I think they did. And that's the same way in which I, I used it. I was totally aware that, yeah, not every one of the uh, philosophes and Lumiere who wrote in the second half of the 18th century all uh, agreed with each other. They weren't promoting a single doctrine that I was referring to. But there, there is a clustering. If you, there are common threads across the writings of many of them. Rousseau would be an outlier in this space of, of uh, ideas and concepts. Uh, but uh, and it's, I'm not embarrassed about the fact that I would uh, exclude Rousseau. I don't think this is a fallacy because it's not the term enlightenment that I care about in the first place. It's the ideals of reason, science, humanism, and progress. In the piece that you wrote for Quillette, which is now on our site, you do engage quite closely with someone who is sort of like an anti-enlightenment figure in, in the form of Nietzsche, could you de- could you describe the feedback you got on your treatment of Nietzsche? Because yes. it sounds like it, it evoked a strangely powerful response among many readers. Yeah, I'm always surprised at what parts of my book get the biggest rise out of readers. And my uh, uh, somewhat irreverent uh, treatment of Friedrich Nietzsche was, uh, was certainly one of them for this book. I uh, mentioned him in the chapter on humanism, largely because you can only understand a concept when you know what it is not. And that's just a good way of explaining what you mean. And there's a danger in endorsing humanism. That is the moral system that, uh, that prioritizes human well-being as the ultimate good. And uh, you know, a natural response would be, well, why do you even have to give that a name? Isn't that obvious? Doesn't everyone believe that? And the answer is no, not everyone believes it. Uh, aside from the fact that, of course, we have several thousand years of a tradition that says that morality comes from scripture or from God's dictates, uh, there is a, a, a secular non-humanist uh, philosophy, namely that of Nietzsche, which is that feats of heroic greatness are what matter, and the well-being of men, women, and children is... Uh, um, is, is dispensable. It's, it's just a justification of slaves uh, out of power to try to look after their own interests, but that we should forget about 
uh, overall human welfare, about worldwide longevity and infant mortality and, uh, and, and prosperity. Uh, that's not what morality consists of. It consists of uh, Beethoven and Napoleon and uh, great geniuses achieving works of uh, immortal value. So uh, that's, that's not humanism. And you might say, well, who, why even distinguish it? Who could really prioritize works of heroic greatness over the uh, health and happiness of, uh, of, of individual humans? And the answer is, well, not only people who've had a pretty big impact in history, like the fascists, like the Nazis, like the Bolsheviks, but a surprising number of intellectuals and artists think that, uh, as, as the 1960s uh, bumper sticker put it, Nietzsche is peachy. Uh, and so does humanism need a defense? Uh, yeah, it does need a defense. Not everyone agrees that human welfare is the ultimate good. I realize I've been mispronouncing Nietzsche's name, but I'm going to continue uh, for the sake. <laughs> well, yeah. we can get it to rhyme with Nietzsche if we uh, if we pronounce it with a long e at the end, even if it isn't the German pronunciation. I'm going to, I'm going to pretend that I anticipated that bumper sticker to justify my my mispronunciation. But <laughs> now that we're talking about this, was one of your challenges in writing this book, and maybe it's evident in the way people have responded to it, that health and happiness are boring compared to to, <laughs> to, to heroism, to the, to the ubermensch. Is there something that you're, you're going against the grain by trying to, to convince people in the reality of human progress using numbers when, when people really are geared to enjoy stories about human heroism and to aspire to it themselves? Uh, yes, and I think we have to distinguish them. There, certainly, it's uh, more... Uh, uh, engaging and entertaining and thrilling to to uh, uh, read a biography of Napoleon or to watch a film about a uh, a conquering hero than to see a bunch of data on how infant mortality rates have gone down. Uh, on, on the other hand, you can uh, get people to think about things in different ways in, in terms of when they make the leap from great stories to what they care about in real life. And if you remind them that when a, a child dies, that that's a real child. It's someone's child. Imagine it was your child. Uh, and to have people distinguish um, great fiction, great mythology from what they really want in real life is something that I think people can be convinced to do. And in fact, I even think we've seen that over the course of uh, recent history. Before World War I, it, uh, you had a lot of uh, statespeople and intellectuals and poets I'm gushing about how wonderful war is. It brings forth heroism and manliness, and it's holy and it's spiritual. And they were, uh, uh, contrary to our sensibilities, many people at the time said that there could be nothing more immoral than uh, than peace, because peace was decadent, and people would become selfish and lazy and uh, effeminate. They they live in, in bovine content, as, as someone at the time put it. Well, until World War One happened, and then you just saw the massive carnage, a generation of young men wiped out, and people started to have second thoughts that maybe this this uh, image, this stereotype of the the uh, the hero courageously meeting death. Well, when it comes to your 18-year-old son getting um, machine gunned to bits for no discernible purpose. Well, maybe you should rethink whether hero stories are our are best guide to, to how we should live our lives. 
So there can be a shift, even though I, I agree with you. Certainly, hero story. There is a part of us that responds to the uh, the image of the hero, but we can rethink what that actually means in people's lives. In your piece that you wrote for Quillette, and and, and certainly in your book, you use a lot of graphs. And uh, I, I think at one point I, I you mentioned there were seventy five graphs in your book. Could mm-hmm. you could you comment a little bit on how effective that sort of thing is? in communicating the sheer magnitude of the improvements in people's lives? Well, I've long uh, been partial to the graphs. Part of it is my own uh, research in visual cognition, that I think that, uh, that, that we are primates. A third of our brain is devoted to vision. And uh, if you can appreciate something by looking at a line, it can be more compelling than uh, a bunch of words. And that was one of the reasons why I uh, decided to have those those graphs. Partly as my own in my own uh, autobiography, I was astonished when I saw the first graphs of what I now consider a, a big story of human progress. When I saw that rates of homicide had plummeted since the Middle Ages in in Europe. So contemporary Englishman has about a 35th chance of being murdered compared to his medieval ancestors. And I first saw that in a graph where the, the cluster of dots just swooped downward, and it just kind of it jumped off the page. It, uh, I thought, wow, I, I never realized that. There was one critique of your book. I don't remember the exact title of the New York Times article, but the gist of it was Stephen Pinker is so obsessed with numbers, he forgets the value of a single human life. The critique yes. was basically that you're a sort of bureaucrat of progress who is letting the real pain that that individuals suffer from all sorts of things escape you. What can you say to something like that? That that, that surprised me, and there there is a uh, a, a common intuition among uh, scientists and uh, effective altruists and data oriented people that there's that many of our intellectuals and pundits and journalists and commentators are are enumerate okay just can't think in numbers and i uh, didn't want to say that cuz it seems so insulting but uh kind of our, our worst suspicions about journalists were kind of confirmed by by this review which try raked me for celebrating the billions of people who have escaped extreme poverty and saying, well, yeah, but what about that? What does that mean to the guy who, the coal miner who lost his job in West Virginia? Uh, now, you know, obviously you should care about everyone, including the coal miner who lost his job in, in uh, West Virginia. But numbers are, the, I argue, the morally enlightened way of appreciating the human condition because they treat all lives as equal. They don't uh, privilege the, the the pretty ones, the most photogenic, uh, or the members of our own tribe. Uh, even if there was a, a trade-off where there were several tens of thousands of American workers who were displaced, but a billion people uh, don't see their children die, don't starve to death, don't uh, choke on uh, cooking smoke, uh, can uh, afford to send their kids to school. We've got to say, if we're adopting uh, policies that uh, a billion people uh, with a huge change in their lives uh, are uh, are genuinely more important than a few ten to, tens of thousands of people have to find a new job. Now, that isn't callous towards those people, but we life involves trade-offs, policies involve trade-offs, 
And uh, we really should care about a billion people as opposed to uh, 10,000 people. And moreover, people who are living or dying as opposed to people who are having to, to, to find new jobs. So numbers matter. Uh, and uh, I, I was surprised to find that someone could get outraged uh, by our view of the world that was based in numbers. Could it be said that criticisms such as that constitute a misdirected form of objection to moral utilitarianism. The idea, you know, we're all familiar with, for instance, the, I believe it's called the trolley problem, where you can sacrifice one identifiable person, but you can save many others whose names we don't know. Uh, many people do find something monstrous in strict utilitarian calculus when it comes to human lives. Is there some element of that in the objection that people throw at you when you give them numbers, and yet, as journalists, they might be more familiar with names? I think that's right. And um, uh, in fact, my colleague, uh, Joshua Green, has done many studies on the psychology of utilitarian versus more deontological intuitions, including uh, studying people's brain activity when they're reasoning through the trolley problem of uh, w whether it's okay to flip a switch that sends a trolley on a track that would kill five uh, workers as opposed to uh, killing one if it stayed on its current trajectory. Uh, noting everyone's a utilitarian in, in, in uh, that scenario, the paradox being that if it, invo if it involves something a little more uh, premeditated, like throwing a, a fat man over a bridge to block the trolley, seeing five men, then people's intuitions flip and they become deontologists. Uh, I, I agree with you. I do think that that is a, uh, an intuition that, um, uh, that that's very strong. And I, I discuss in the humanism chapter whether humanism is just utilitarianism, and if that's indeed an indictment of humanism. Uh, and uh, I think there is a difference between our intuitions in dealing with uh, with our everyday life scenarios and what we uh, ought to do when we're thinking in terms of policy or in thinking in terms of what should governments do, what should we do when we make charitable donations, what should we do when we want to benefit people. There are the intuitions that grow up in terms of our day-to-day -day interactions with our friends and family just can't be it can't be extrapolated. They aren't the basis of policies that affect millions of people. And in the case of, of uh, global development, it's not as if we're deliberately uh, uh, harming uh, a certain number of people to, to benefit others in that kind of intuition that triggers the revulsion to utilitarian thinking, like grabbing someone with your bare hands and throwing them over a bridge. Uh, so it's not even as if that kind of revulsion uh, enters into uh, th these decisions. And of course, we don't want to be callous to anyone. So it's not really uh, a license to be indifferent to the, the, the plight of people who still are suffering. But, um, but we do have to think about policies in terms of, of uh, how many people they affect and how, how they're affected. Your book, Enlightenment Now, was published a year ago. And I'm guessing that you finished up the, the final edits on it in 2017, just as Donald Trump was taking control of the White House. How much did the Donald Trump phenomenon and the associated populist phenomenon in other countries, how much did that shape your, your last efforts at writing the book? Uh, it did shape it. it the um, Trumpocalypse, as I think of it, occurred about halfway through writing the book. 
And I did have to rethink uh, uh, the, the, certainly the overall tenor, because before Trump was elected, it was much easier to say that these processes that I was advocating were well underway and they had a, a kind of historical momentum, which I think they, they still do. But the um, Trump and the rise of authoritarian populists certainly show that uh, that the Enlightenment project needs more of a push than I might have thought at the time, that it was not already uh, underway with a, a, um, a you know, unstoppable momentum, that there, there were people standing athwart the uh, Enlightenment shouting, stop, uh, halt. Uh, and I, I did devote a little more uh, uh, space and time to uh, uh, trying to look forward and ask um, how uh, likely are these uh, aspects of progress to continue because a lot of the Trump policies uh, push back at them, such as nuclear uh, proliferation, such as global cooperation, such as environmental regulation. And it made me curious as to where this, uh, what seemed like a, a, a retrograde uh, ideology, where did it come from? And uh, I, I then did connect uh, Trumpism to counter-enlightenment uh, ideologies that had arisen in the 19th century. Now, it may sound a little fanciful to talk about the intellectual roots of Trumpism. It may even sound like an oxymoron. And in fact, one uh, historian of ideas said, forget it, Trump is just pure id. There's just no, there are no ideas behind it. I think that turned out not to be true, that Trump did have a brain trust of Steve Bannon and Michael Anton and Steve Miller, people who thought of themselves as intellectuals. There's actually a petition in support of Trump in the summer of 2016 signed by 100 professors and intellectuals, and they were absolutely rooted in counter-enlightenment thinking, not excluding Nietzsche, but a kind of heroism, nationalism, uh, uh, ethnocentrism, the idea that there's no such thing as an individual, there are just, uh, everyone is a, a Frenchman or an Englishman or a German, uh, that uh, uh, international cooperation is a mirage, there's zero-sum competition among uh, nations which are the same as ethnic groups. So these, these are ideas. I don't know how many of them uh, Trump discovered through uh, reading, probably zero, but there was a natural harmony between his intuitive way of thinking and uh, uh, this, this system of ideas. And I think that one way to interpret the revival of authoritarian populism is that it's the, the latest uh, surge in this uh, counter-enlightenment mindset. I'm wondering if I could ask you about Francis Fukuyama, whose book on identity came out last year. It came out after after your book. I have noted there's a lot of uh, similar themes in, in the two books, with Fukuyama tracing everything back to this fundamental idea that humans crave recognition. And that recognition sometimes just can't come through the conventional way that post-Enlightenment societies organize themselves. I don't presume that you've necessarily read Fukuyama's book, but I'm wondering how persuasive you find this idea that there's this atavistic hunger for recognition, which can only be satisfied if you step out of the utilitarian, humanistic way of thinking that ultimately advances the success of whole societies. 
Well, yes, and, and Fukuyama is certainly relevant because his famous article on the end of history uh, uh, announced many people thought prematurely that the uh, motives of political organization endorsed by Enlightenment thinkers, namely liberal democracy, had uh, had triumphed. And the end of history, in, in Fukuyama's sense, didn't mean that nothing would ever happen again, but rather that there would be no uh, ideological conflict over the humanly best form of government that we we found it, and it was liberal democracy. Uh, this was, uh, I think, written off a little prematurely that uh, the various requiems for liberal democracy are uh, don't actually look at the numbers and how popular democracy co- continues to be and are, are retreating a little bit too quickly in the face of developments in, in Turkey and Hungary and for that matter the United States. But one can see that, that uh, uh, Fukuyama himself had to absolutely complicate his, uh, uh, his narrative based on what's happening. Now, as a psychological claim, I, there is much to that, and it, it's really two claims. One of them is that uh, people have to feel that, that they matter, as uh, my other half, Rebecca Goldstein, has put it in, a, in an article in a forthcoming book, that, that everyone has some uh, uh, system of values by which they feel that they are, are significant and worthy of, of uh, respect. The uh, other half of that is that, that the way in which people matter has to be in terms of the glory of the group that they belong to, their, their nation, their religion, their ethnic group. There, there's, uh, and, and I have not yet read uh, Fukuyama's book, I'm, I'm looking forward to. Um, I, there's a reason to believe that there's a, a, a fair amount of, of, of variability or plasticity in what people attach their identity to. That and it, it, it needn't only be their nation or ethnic group. It could be their sports team, their city, their state, the brand of camera equipment they use. Uh, I think the need to validate your identity by reference to some group of which you're a proud member is very much part of human nature. But what that group is and how many of the, those groups there can be is a, a matter of uh, context and, and framing and peer values. And it needn't be that the only way you feel valid is in terms of how many square miles of territory your country occupies. In your book, you focus a lot on variables that, that go up and down, that can be measured, that can be graphed. What would you say to the critique that there are certain kinds of threats to humanity that are, are, are so existential that they can't be captured with mere graphs and charts? Some people would put global warming in that category, that we're either going to stop global warming or we're not, and if we don't, whole cities are going to be flooded. The same might be true of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, nuclear terrorism, that these are not threats that are amenable to, um, to modulation uh, on a, a gradual up-and-down basis, and that post-Enlightenment tools thus far haven't given us a definitive way of tackling these scenarios, especially in the case of global warming. The graph that we have for global warming looks like a hockey stick, and we've known about it for decades, but we can't seem to do anything about it. Well, there, there, there's several issues there. Yeah, I do think that the that global warming is the uh, most severe threat that we face. Uh, we 
know it's a threat because we're using the tools of the Enlightenment, namely, uh, namely science, because if you simply walk outside, as, as the climate deniers say, well, it's, it's pretty cold today, it's put on a sweater, so therefore global warming is a, is a hoax. We argue against that using the tools of the Enlightenment, namely that our equations and simulations and data sets and models uh, tell us about a future that we can't experience with our five senses, but that we had, had better believe because our, our best intellects uh, give us reason to believe it. So I would, you're right that it would be uh, entirely misleading to simply extrapolate from uh, a graph of, of current temperature or even current well-being that, uh, that there are uh, non-linearities, including in, in climate, that, that uh, many distributions of events have uh, thick tails in the sense that uh, now switching from climate change to, say, the threat of nuclear war, that they, uh, uh, it, it is certainly true that uh, one, uh, because wars are distributed in a distribution that has uh, thick tails, namely that there is a there can be events that are improbable but not astronomically improbable, and they can involve such massive damage that simply multiplying the probability by the damage gives you a misleading impression of the threats that we face. Again, that's, and that is a reason not, indeed not to take a graph of war deaths as a direct indicator of the underlying danger. And that, that's an argument that I made over many pages in, in an earlier book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, based on uh, analyses by Lewis Fry Richardson in the 1950s. And, and indeed, I think we do have to, to uh, worry about it. It's, it's, it is a warning not to use a, a simple graph as an indicator of the underlying threat. It's certainly not an indictment of, of enlightenment thinking. Quite the contrary. It is, involves this, these fairly abstruse tools of mathematical analysis and computer modeling to give us a picture of the future and to, uh, even more important, to defy our own intuitions about what will head off the, uh, the threat to direct us toward the actions that really will, uh, will minimize it. And that's especially acute in the case of global warming, where our moral intuitions, I think, lead us uh, astray. Uh, I myself, I confess, have participated in campaigns uh, that are utterly worthless, like I posed for a poster showing me unplugging my chargers as my little effort for, for global warm, fight climate change as part of the Harvard initiative. You know, I did it to be a good sport, but in a way, everyone could unplug their charmer, chargers and the plant will still dangerously overheat. That's a case where our uh, intuitions about what the moral thing to do, our numbers tell us, is actually immoral because it will not stave off the threats. We've got to really pay attention to the numbers and say what actually will uh, reduce the threat of catastrophic climate change. And the answer may be very different from what our intuition suggests to us. The story that you mentioned about uh, unplugging your charger as sort of a PR stunt reminds me of my neighbor who drives across town to get uh, a special kind of detergent that's better for the environment. <laughs> Uh, but I think a lot of this, a lot of us do this. A lot of it is encouraged by social media, where 
posturing on behalf of something sometimes gets confused with the real thing. I know that you are somewhat dismissive of the apocalyptic warnings that have been made about social media, but would you say that social media does promote a more superficial hashtag-based approach to confronting some of the existential problems facing our society? It's a, it's a good question. Um, you know, I, I would I would not I, I wouldn't say that it doesn't. Although I think the problem is is deeper. It's a problem in our moral sense uh, that uh, we our, our intuitions are driven by the kinds of signals that we tend to use in our social lives to judge people. Who do I want as my uh, ally, a friend? Who do I want in my foxhole? Who do I want to praise? Who do I want to shun? Uh, which is totally um, incommensurate with a challenge that a problem like global warming faces us. And you you might be right that social media uh, makes it worse because there are public acts that can be broadcasted. But the, the, um, I mean, the campaign that I uh, volunteered for involved posters plastered around campus. So the, the dynamic is, might be worsened by social media, but it's not primarily one of social media. It's really one of an incommensurability between our, um, our, our moral intuitions and the uh, challenge facing us. And it's, it's also very much a, a question of our, our, our moral and political tribalism, that we have certain uh, intuitions based, or certain convictions based on whether we consider ourselves green, whether we consider ourselves libertarian, and uh, some of the answers that are dictated by our membership in a political tribe uh, are, are probably wrong in terms of what will actually effectively stave off uh, climate change. Example being um, acts of conspicuous voluntary conservation, such as unplugging chargers and um, versus, say, endorsing nuclear power. Now, it just so happens that that, uh, partly by way of historical accident, got associated with a kind of right-wing, non-green uh, way of thinking and, and is rejected, I argue, uh, prematurely and irrationally by uh, people who, if they are concerned about climate change, really should plug in the numbers and see what's going to get us to zero emissions most quickly. I'm old enough to remember Three Mile Island, and my sense was that Western civilization was just getting over fears of nuclear power generation when Fukushima hit. I do try to remind people that it is essentially a zero emission fuel source. No, that's quite right. And if you're old enough to remember Three Mile Island, you may have, I don't know if you ever saw the No Nukes concert. Uh, One person I spoke to blamed uh, the Doobie Brothers and Bruce Springsteen and Bonnie Raitt for global warming because they turned, uh, that that benefit concert turned an entire generation away from nuclear power, which uh, given the fact that people want electricity, more and more people are going to want it, more and more people deserve to have it, uh, it's much better for them to get it from nuclear than from coal. Uh, in, no comparison in terms of the uh, damage to human health, let alone the effect on uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Doobie Brothers surely were history's greatest monsters. <laughs> I want to, before I let you go, I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the very last section of your essay that you wrote for Quillette, which I sense was the closest that you came to maybe anger, although I, I think you're you're a very positive person uh, as you project yourself in in the way you write. But in the last section of the essay, you analyze the opponents 
of your book in a way that suggests that they are animated by a kind of uh, sentimentality and professional hubris. You cite examples from the past where when scientists tried to bridge gaps with the liberal arts, they were sometimes rebuffed on on the theory that there's a certain purity and romance and, and moral stature associated with literature and philosophy that shouldn't be polluted with a scientific form of thinking. And I got the sense that you felt that the reaction to your book was animated by that sort of peevishness. That's not the word you use, it's the word I'm using. But does it make you angry? Well, I, you know, I try to, I think like, like any author, I uh, experience anger welling up when, when there are reviews that I, and reactions that I think are, are unfair. And to the extent that I feel that, that's something that I uh, ought to inhibit and that I try to inhibit. Uh, but, uh, but, but you might be right in seeing it leaking you through. Uh, and it's, but it, it's, uh, I hope it's more than that. And that I hope it's also just a diagnosis of where some of the, the, the heat comes from on both sides. And I, in my uh, professional life, I've um, wondered why I sometimes get attacked by the same people for what seem to be completely different positions. So for, just to be concrete, uh, some people are up in arms over my argument in Better Angels of Our Nature, amplified in Enlightenment Now, that, uh, that the world has improved, that uh, violence has declined, uh, that war has declined. Um, so so that, that offended some people. Then I wrote a book on, on writing, um, the, the sense of style. And that seemed to infuriate uh, a number of people, some of the same people, when I suggested that not all rules of prescriptive correct grammar uh, ought to be followed. Some of them are, uh, are, are folklore and legends and uh, grandmother's tales, uh, and that the, a lot of the logic of language comes from uh, usage, from people just doing their best to express themselves, and that a lot of these expert rules are, are, uh, are nonsense. Uh, so why, why would those two very different uh, positions tend to rile up the same people? So I was, uh, I probably was peeved both times. I hope it wasn't just my own peeve that led me to ask the question, is there some common denominator? You know, maybe it's that I'm just a, you know, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm a charlatan, maybe I'm, uh, uh, my scholarship is meretricious, and that's the common denominator. Maybe I'm not the one to judge. I, I think there is something else. And the something else that I think there is, is there is an enormous amount of um, resentment uh, from some cultural critics, humanities scholars, literary lions, over what they see as the intrusion of science into their sacred realm. And I, uh, I did mention the uh, ferocious backlash that C.T. Snow got when he published The Two Cultures in the early 1960s, where F.R. Levis, one of the, the literary lions of the day, uh, uh, wrote a reply that was so venomous that... Uh, the spectator was nervous about publishing it, and they asked Snow to indemnify them against uh, pressing a libel suit. That's how vicious it was. And around the same time, uh, an American literary critic, Dwight MacDonald, wrote an attack on Webster's Third International Dictionary. Now, why would a dictionary get a literary critic so up in arms? Well, this was the first dictionary that claimed to be uh, based on scientific principles, on computerized data sets of real usage, of theories in linguistics. 
and uh, he 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 blew a stack. This was just uh, just uh, an unacceptable outrage. So, putting aside whatever peevishness I felt, and I hope that wasn't the, the main motive, it was trying to put my finger on a current of reaction to certain classes of ideas that where I think the common denominator is scientists appearing to be like carpetbaggers by the um, defenders of the traditional uh, territory of the humanities. And, and just to be clear, I don't think the peevishness came out in any explicit form. It was just me as an editor, perhaps detecting some undercurrents. I to the extent it existed, I thought it was disguised very well. Okay, glad, glad to hear that. Thank you so much for appearing on the Quillette podcast and for contributing your essay to Quillette. People can read it at quillette.com. And your book is called Enlightenment Now. Congratulations on your success and the continued interest in your work. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for having me on. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you'll find more content.